The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have an opportunity this morning to dig deeper into scripture, Lord. I pray that you will open our hearts and you will take away any distractions and that you will soften our ears and our hearts, Lord, to receive your message and your truth. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Trevor. I lead over our prayer ministry here at Grace City. I'm not usually the guy that's up here. I'm filling in for Randall this week again. Um, Last week, we were in the book of James. We were walking through wisdom, as James talks on wisdom. Wisdom that comes from God and wisdom that is marked by the practical parts of our lives, the behavioral parts of our lives, the habitual parts of our lives. Wisdom that's rooted in God will affect everything that we're all about. And this week we're, we're shifting gears from where we talk about wisdom, and this week we're talking a lot of, about identity. Identity and where our closeness is found. James, James uh, he spends a lot of time talking about this and really begs the question, Who are you a friend to? Are you a friend to God? Are you a friend to the world? James fleshes out this struggle and he fleshes out just what it means to be at war within yourself. And we experience this battle and this tension every day. James is calling to mind on something we really, we really miss at the present moment. There are two things that are really easy for us to miss in this phase of our lives right now. One is life-defining friendships, ones that have longevity, ones that have 
dependence, ones where you have a deep trust in someone that you know cares for you unconditionally. The other is, I think sometimes we struggle being brutally honest with ourselves about the things we're really bad at. What does a lot of friendships look like today versus maybe a decade ago or so, if you can remember? And even how do we compare that with the context of what James is talking about? He's talking about friendship uh, to God in a very unique way that if we're looking at it from our view today, we're gonna miss what he's saying. It seems rare and rare by the year to, to find friendships, real relationships that are lasting five, 10, 15 years. When was the last time you went out of your way to connect with someone that you ascribe as your best friend? When was the last time you thought about them? When was the last time you talked? What did you talk about? What was important to you when you were spending time with them? It's so easy in the social media driven world to know everything about what's going on in people's lives, but to not know anything about how they're actually doing. It's an interesting thing today. You can be connected to hundreds of people, yet at the same time, we're seeing inflated numbers of people feeling isolated, depressed, lonely. It's safe to say that people are missing something they need in relationships, and currently they're feeling the, they're feeling the price of, for that feeling and that pain. If something chaotic and crisis-ridden happened to you, would you have anyone that would sacrifice some time to call you or visit you if you were in the hospital? If you made a really bad decision, would you have someone, uh, would you have someone to talk to if you somehow managed to land yourself in prison? Would anyone bail you out? It's not the happy stuff, but you need someone to be totally honest with you. And you need that same person when you're in a moment of tension or struggle or distortion that's able to point you back to the gospel, that's able to point you back to Jesus. A lot of times when we are talking about relationship with God, we seem to apply the same dynamics of relationships every else, everywhere else in our lives. The problem is that God's presence in your life is going to be completely different. And of course, that's gonna be in the best way possible where, where friends and family um, fail you and maybe even betray you at some moment. You know that God is always with you, that he's dependable, that he is trustworthy, that he will never fail you. When we are talking about friendship here, as James applies it, it is totally different. It's a different concept. And if we are inserting how we view, see, and practice friendship, then we're gonna miss the beautiful nuances of our relationship with God and how James is processing through this in James 4. Friendship at the time that James is writing does not deal with friendship on the basis of shallow similarities or having a mutual set of acquaintances or even, mutu or even uh, networking. 
Friendship instead leans into where our priorities, desires, and deepest identity rest in. To be a friend of God is to be so connected to his spirit and heart that we submit to him and his will, and that's expressed thoroughly in our lives. Friendship in this context is a full commitment to the gospel. It is no surprise in this kind of relationship that Jesus calls us family. It's so much more than a servicey friendship. Let's dive into, into James 4. Our first point is this, the root of worldliness. This is what James says in verses one through five. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? There's a lot going on here with what James uh, opens up with in chapter four. James emphasizes that the source of conflict and war of self is, is a, a huge struggle for the audience he's writing to. And it's probably Christians that are falling away, people that responded to the gospel yet are living in a worldly way, are even identifying by their lifestyle in a worldly manner. James brings to mind that it is your passions, it is your desires that are in constant war and battle within you. This is so telling of what it really is like in our hearts. Paul writes in his epistle that even he does what he doesn't want to and he doesn't do what he wishes to. Even the faithful are battling and fighting this fight inside themselves. And this isn't something we should gloss over. Try to place yourselves in your friends, families, coworkers that haven't accepted Jesus. It's so easy to be critical and judgmental of people that only pursue the desires of the flesh where everything points back to pleasure seeking life indulgence. And honestly, if you haven't discovered Jesus in your life, then you very well may be in a place of having what you want, but still knowing that you're missing out, still knowing that there's something critical that you need that you've never experienced. Knowing the power of the gospel means that you know full well that the pleasures of this world, that they aren't enough. Sometimes we don't always do an amazing job of communicating this to people uh, that aren't believers in our workplace or our families or at school. James isn't saying that you should have a completely stoic life and that any good things that you have pleasure in that they're actually bad things. James is showing us a healthy balance. If we remember in chapter one, there are clearly things that God wishes for us to derive joy from. The question is this, what are the desires in my life? 
And are those desires marked by a deeper yearning to know and love Jesus more? Who is at the very center? And in verse three, James says this, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I want to bridge this with Jesus's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus shows, shows us that you don't have to be a killer to want to hurt someone. It's easy to look at what James is saying and forget that he is connecting what he is writing to Christians to the very same teachings of his brother. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You have, heard, it, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Hopefully you can say that you've never done, you've never killed someone. You've never done the extreme here. I think it's completely safe to say that you probably haven't done that. But let's get to the heart issue here. Let's look, look at this by considering uh, two things, intent and reaction. Maybe you're struggling to get by right now. Maybe you're struggling to understand why everyone is further along than you. Maybe you're questioning decisions. Perhaps a degree hasn't held its weight for your experience, expectations of your future. Maybe you have a re relational rift with a loved one and uh, any time you end up talking to them and trying to reconcile, you end up lashing out and making things worse. There's somewhere in your life, either today or in your past, that you were sowing hate and reaping death. And you've already felt the outcome from that hate. Here's the crazy thing that James unveils to us, that we are living life completely backwards. And prayer shows us how we missed a point. Here's a really helpful quote from Sam Alberry, a commentator on James. The purpose of prayer is not to try to get God, the purpose of prayer is not to try to get God to do what we want. It is actually a means by which we align ourselves to his priorities. Part of the point of prayer is to remind ourselves of what God wants. The root of worldliness is, is that you carry all of your burdens, stress, and pressure on yourself. Even though we probably wouldn't say it, but our life demonstrates that our philosophy is that it's all on me to get the job done. And we, when we see and are confronted that that's not enough, we're completely shattered. If everything, if all meaning is derived on myself and well, I'm not good enough to get it done, then that means that I'm totally, I'm gonna complete failure. And even our prayers can vocalize this misunderstanding when we pray with conditions that we want. We pray in a way that we almost demand God to work in our lives the way we want him to. And when our prayers aren't answered the way we like them, then it creates huge doubts. The staggering issue happens when we are eventually confronted with a spiritual crisis or spiritual confusion. 
Just like when we were talking about the true meaning of friendship to God and our relationship with him, that this relationship is marked by aligning and trusting his design for your life. We have to remember prayer is about God, it's not about us. We don't like to hear that. The reminder is humbling, but the humbling brings peace, the peace of Christ to you. There is a huge hope knowing that God wants to speak to you and that God wants to provide for your needs. That doesn't mean it's gonna be flashy or it's gonna be glamorous. We see Jesus's life and it certainly wasn't full of gold and shimmer. He had a humble life. He had a life that we would probably want to reject. And Tim Keller has a really good and very concise quote on prayer that I think runs in the exact same vein here. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. The hard part here is that we don't know what we need and we don't know how to ask for our needs to be supplied. James even stresses this to effect that we take what God blesses us with and we spend it on our passion, our fleshly desires. Even after God has provided and delivered, we choose to return back to the old life after God has shown his faithfulness in our lives. Our second point is this, the root of humility. And in verses six through 10, this is what James says. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The root of humility rests in knowing that we need peace from the war that is waged in our hearts. God gives grace to the humble. To trust in the power of the gospel is humility. These verses show us the friendship to God and being aligned with his heart and spirit that it yearns both for humility and for grace to be flowing from the fountain of your spirit. God opposes pride as pride is our attempt to believe that we are all there is. When we exalt ourselves, we are brought low. Pride is a lot like a temporary high. It can make you feel good for a little bit, but after a while you sober up and you are conflicted on thoughts that you have about everything. And when you feel that low, you wanna escape it. And you'll do anything possible to escape that low. And you'll do whatever it takes to feel high again. If you want to have that perfect peace, one that is separated and away from pride and the pressures of the enemy, then you have to embrace God's presence for your life daily. Trusting and submitting, grace and humility mark repentance. Draw near to him and he shall draw near to you. Peter speaks on the same issue, resisting the enemy and remaining steadfast in Christ. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter offers a strong encouragement for where we are today. There is a strange assurance to our hearts as we experience suffering. We know that there is a community of those that suffer, of those that are persecuted. That it is better to walk through hard moments and persecution for the gospel than it is to be given luxury because of the lies from the enemy. Peter shows us beyond the suffering that we ex- that what we experience, that God has beautiful things ahead of us and that he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Understanding the promises and security in Jesus, we come to crossroad moments. What is the appropriate response to understanding that I need grace by letting God bring humility to myself? The answer is repentance real, true, honest repentance. Sam uh, Alberry comments and says this, repentance of attitude without change in conduct is no repentance at all, nor can we expect to change our behavior without seriously changing the thoughts and attitudes that lie behind it. Repentance must involve both hands and heart. Each is in need of change, for it is both that we stray from God just as real faith acts, so real dependent, real repentance changes. Verses eight through 10 stresses repentance that accompanies life and humility and grace. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Aligning with God's will creates a completely inverted experience living from the, for us than those that uh, don't know Jesus. The humble will be exalted, laughter to mourning and joy to gloom. When you are on mission and living in God's will, our former life and former self, the things that brought us joy and laughter will bring us gloom. Maybe even as a parent, you've seen the, uh, the other side as, as having children and seeing them experience what at one season brought them joy that now brings them pain. It's not that God doesn't want you to experience joy and pleasure and goodness. It's that he's giving you the fuller, real uh, perspective and precision of what life is and what he wishes for you. And he's honest with us about what it's about. God is transforming our hearts and he's bringing us closer to him through repentance, active repentance. Our third point is this, love your brother. This is what James says in the last portion of James four. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and he judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? 
James lays out a lot of practical living and heart issue in our spirit. James here paints a vivid picture for us about our thoughts, our conduct, our speech, and all are connected to our spirituality and following Jesus. Trusting Jesus with our lives means trusting him with our perceptions, especially our perceptions of people. Speaking against others is to speak against the law. Think about slander for a moment. Have you ever spoken slander against a person in your life, publicly or privately? Have you ever knowingly spoken lies about a person with the intention of damaging their reputation or their character or even possibly their career? Acting out in sin, you are judging the law. You are placing yourself above the grace that God has given you. And in that moment, you are judging that vengeance and pride is better than forgiveness and mercy. It's being unfaithful to Jesus. This is what Paul says in Romans. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here's what we need to know that when we, ju- when we judge and when we speak evil, we are being the same person where sin is rebuked, where we're trying to correct or maybe encourage our brother who's slipping. Do you elevate yourself to Lord over and judge? Here's the thing, it's not your place to judge. And I hope it brings you peace to know that it's not your burden to judge. There's an irony when we do when we do what we tell people is bad. How can you share the gospel well if the gospel isn't at work in your life when the voice you listen to is yours instead of Jesus? I remember in junior high school when a friend of mine was telling me about football practice. They were doing the usual practice, skills, stretching, getting punished, running. (laughs) And then then the, the coach, uh, talks to all of them at the end of practice while they're in lines and they're, they're listening to their coach. And the coach says, don't smoke, kids. It's real bad for you. It'll kill you. It's the, worst, it's the worst mistake you can make after lighting one cigarette after another all through practice. It's a really funny scene. It's a really bad scene too. <laughs> but we do the exact same thing where the coach just is lighting cigarettes one after another. When we deny the gospel in our lives. We deny Christ, and that can be stifling for our brothers or non-Christians around you. And God's kindness is meant, it's meant to lead you to repentance. Here are a couple takeaways I wanna leave, leave you with. Uh, the first one's this, and I know that we would say that we do this, but it's, it's really being honest and it's really praying about this. Trust Jesus with what you need. 
we spent a lot of time in the beginning of this message talking about prayer, processing, how we both ask and trust Jesus with our needs, how trusting him leads us away from worldliness and towards godliness, leaning into the gospel and calling ourselves a friend to God. In the original context, it means a oneness, an alignment to the will and heart of God. This takeaway is so critical because when we are first growing and practicing in prayer, we can sometimes project a louder voice of what we want or would like to happen rather than placing the trust in Jesus and what he's going to do. There is commitment and submission in relationship, and that's hard. When you listen to someone well and receive truth well, there is a submission that happens, especially when God is working in our lives and drawing us nearer to his spirit. When you are praying and seeking Jesus with your everyday needs, we're remaining more and more in him every day, remaining in the vine. Our second takeaway is this, purify your heart through God's grace. So the critical part here is that it's not purifying your heart on your effort alone, it's purifying your heart through the grace that God has given you, that he is the one that is producing that change. Being a friend of God and, in, and oneness with his will, it takes a transformation of heart and a transformation of our desires, what we yearn for, what we honestly want. Being pure in heart, it stresses simplicity, a simplicity of our innermost being, becoming pure in heart in the grace and the grace of God means that among everything around us and all the voices trying to influence what we choose, that the will of God singularly for our lives is what we seek, what we yearn, what we chase. Kierkegaard, who was a, a Christian philosopher way back in the day, he has a great way of conceptualizing this. And he has an entire book devoted to the meaning and actualization of willing everything in our life to be from the source of God's grace. That being pure in heart is derived from your will and, and that the one purpose in that will is what affects everything. And this is what he said, it's, it's very simple. It's, it's like a phrase, it's not, it's barely a sentence. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is either going to point to godliness that God is refining in your hearts or simply put, your heart is only going to point back to the world and the desires of the flesh. Let God's grace be what is shaping you and what is influencing both your mind and your speech. Let it be the standard that you use to build your life, to build your relationships. It is only through God's goodness that this is possible. It is independence that he is good enough and that if our will is in his will, that we will have the life that we're meant for. This is our final takeaway. Choose the gospel first. How do we come to a point where we are true in spirit with the will of God always? How do I pray placing myself second and placing God first? How do I fully and honestly become godly and be in oneness with Jesus to the point 
that his will is my very foundation, the very cornerstone of my being and who I am. We have to choose the gospel first. We have to choose to prioritize that the gospel is bigger than me and that the gospel is more important than me. And that's something to wrestle with. I want you to spend time in prayer this week and I want you to ask these very same questions. And the hard part is that it may honestly be true that there never comes a moment in your weekly rhythm that you ever pray, that you're ever asking Jesus, what do I do? What am I supposed to say? How am I supposed to share your peace and hope around me? If you aren't praying and aren't opening the dialogue with Jesus, how's he going to speak to you? And how are you, how are you gonna to speak to others through him? I wanna leave you with a very basic takeaway, the most basic takeaway ever. I want you to make 10 minutes somewhere in your day, every day. Maybe it's when you wake up, maybe it's the commute, maybe it's a 15 minute break at work or school. I want you to start with an intentional daily 10 minute prayer. And to ask God, what does it look like to put your gospel first in my life? What does it look like to ask God, how do I lean into you how do I really begin to let go of myself and hold on to you? Choosing the gospel first is the building blocks to living the gospel first. It's how you repent and it's how you live the, God, the life that God has meant for you. Let us pray. Lord, we, we thank you that, that we can depend on you. We thank you for your grace that it's powerful and sufficient for us, that, that we know that, um, that being in constant oneness in accordance with, with your heart and your will, Lord, that, that, um, that that's what brings us closer, that that's what godliness is. It's not, about, it's not about us being capable of doing everything or anything, Lord. It's, it's the trust that you've already done it. It's already been done, Lord. I pray just that we have peace and, uh, and reassurance knowing that, Lord. And we just thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your gospel. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.